0: So the first reading is from John seven, verses thirty-seven to thirty-nine, and you can find those that reading on page one thousand and seventy-two in the Church Bibles. John seven, thirty-seven to thirty-nine. <clears throat> On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given Since Jesus had not yet been glorified. And the second reading is Ephesians 5, verses 1 to 21, and can be found on page 1176. Ephesians 5, 1 to 21. (coughs) Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure or greedy person, such a man is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, For because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore do not be partners with them. For you you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, for it is the light that makes everything visible. This is why it is said, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, in our little series, uh, post-Pentecost on the Holy Spirit, we've come to the fullness of the Holy Spirit, which is a term used in Ephesians 5 that we'll come to in the second part of uh, the talk this morning. But first of all, just an introduction in becoming a Christian. When someone becomes a Christian, they are united to the Lord Jesus Christ. We come to be in Christ, and come, and Christ comes to be in us. That's the foundation of our salvation uh, in all its uh, developing aspects. And in and through union with Christ, which is the dominant kind of uh, relationship in the New Testament... Uh, in and through union with Christ, we enjoy the rest of the package, really, justification. We are declared legally right with the God with God. We are OK with Him. We receive forgiveness for all our sins, all our sins. We are adopted into God the Father's heavenly family. We are consecrated and we begin the process of transformation. All this happens the very moment that we turn to Christ in belief. And we are also in that moment of being united with Christ by faith, filled with the Holy Spirit. And this privilege is one of the core elements in our initiation as Christians. It's something that happens through faith in Christ. It happens immediately. We've come to be in union with him. And it's as much a part of the meaning of being a Christian as justification, adoption, sanctification. But in this whole area, it's really important to get a proper understanding of the different terms which are used. Now, there have been um, efforts, particularly in the last hundred years or so, to try and distinguish between being filled with the Spirit on the one hand and being baptised in the Spirit on the other. Uh, To add to the confusion, some Christians also say that to have or to receive the Spirit is one thing, but to be filled with the Spirit is something quite different. And still others draw a similar wedge between being sealed with the Spirit and being filled with the Spirit. So you see, we have quite a number of terms floating around in uh, Acts and in the rest of the New Testament. To be filled, to be baptised, to have, to receive, to be sealed. Now, can we draw a distinction between them? And can we use them as labels for distinct experiences? Well, I think we'll see that it's impossible to draw any clear distinction between these terms and that in fact they describe more or less indiscriminately the same experience. Let me explain. To be baptised with the Spirit is, to be, is the same as to be filled with the Spirit, is the same as to receive the Spirit, is the same as to have the Spirit, and is the same as to be sealed with the Spirit. The main reason for saying that is that virtually all those terms are used to describe what happened on the day of Pentecost. So, in Acts one, five, we have the risen Lord Jesus foretelling the events of the day of Pentecost, which he describes as being baptised with the Spirit. He says, in a few days you will be baptised with the Holy Spirit. And that promise is a clear allusion to Pentecost. And yet, in the account of Pentecost itself, in Acts 2, the phrase baptised with the Spirit is not used at all. Instead, what is said is that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, Acts 2, verse 4. In other words, the great promise of being baptised with the Spirit is fulfilled in terms of being filled with the Spirit. In Acts 10, 47, when uh, Peter is referring to what happened at the house of Cornelius, he, discla- he declares, they have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. In other words, he's saying that what has happened to Cornelius is what happened to him in Acts 2 when it was referred to as filled with the Spirit. So clearly Luke, the author of the Acts of the Apostles, is not using these words to draw precise technical distinctions between various levels of experience. To receive the Holy Spirit is to be baptised in the Holy Spirit, and to be baptised in the Spirit is to be filled with the Spirit. No one receives who is not baptised, and no one is baptised who is not filled. Now, there are two things worth registering here. The first is that to be filled with the Spirit is always something that God the Son or God the Father does. It is God himself who fills us with the Holy Spirit. It's not so much as that we were baptised by the Spirit or filled by the Spirit. Instead, the Spirit is the medium in which we are baptised or the means with which we are filled. So the Spirit is not the baptizer or the agent. He's the one in whom God the Father or God the Son baptizes or pours out on us or fills us. So it's through the medium and the means of the Holy Spirit that God the Father and God the Son are able to live in us the lives of believers. And we as believers are able to share in the life of of God the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's through the Holy Spirit that the numerous occasions in the New Testament where it's said that God is in us or that we are in God or Christ is in us or we are in Christ is realized. And following on from that, baptizing always amounts to filling. The reason why is simply that the Holy Spirit is a person And therefore, there's no possibility of receiving part of the Holy Spirit. We are filled with the Spirit. We are baptised with the Spirit. We receive the whole Holy Spirit. And that is the fullness of the divine personality. And to enjoy the fullness of his activity in us. And this is something that is enjoyed by all Christians, Acts 2, 4. They, that were the disciples, the 120 in the upper room, were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They were all there. They constituted the church at that point in time. They did nothing. The Holy Spirit came on all of them. And it was to be the model for the New Testament age. We read in Acts two seventeen. in these last days, this is the way it is going to be. I will pour out my Spirit on all people. That's all people, young and old, sons and daughters, servants, the whole body of Christ. And then Peter tells the crowd of 3,000 converts in Acts 2.38 that they are to be given the promised gift of the Holy Spirit. And then he tells them, repent and be baptised and you will receive this gift and the same teaching is laid down explicitly by the apostle Paul in his letter to the Corinthians 1 Corinthians 12 13 we were all baptized by one spirit into one body and we were all given the one spirit to drink now references to drink can convey the thought of the Holy Spirit is some kind of fluid and that we need to get kind of refueled Well, that would tend to kind of depersonalize the Holy Spirit if we were to kind of go down that route and develop that uh, thought. And as we stressed earlier, the Holy Spirit is a person with whom, as believers, we can have, of course, a close or a distant relationship, but not a partial one. We should note that of the terms baptised, filled, received, have, sealed, used to refer to Pentecost or to the believer's initial reception of the Spirit, there's one and just one of those words, which is fill, which is used not just as that one great event and not just as a starting off in the Christian life, but it is also used in a different tense as a continuous tradition, con- condition. So, how's that possible? How are we to continue being filled with the Spirit? And that's where we turn to our first reading, John 7, page 1072, where we read uh, the Apostle John writing, On the last day, on on the last and greatest day of the festival. Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, "'Let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink. "'Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, "'rivers of living water will flow from within them.'" The late John Stott, writing on these two verses, says, "'In order to keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit, "'we have to keep on coming to the Lord Jesus.'" It was the last day of the feast, of tabernacles, we know from verse two of chapter seven. And now we come to the climax of that seven-day festival. The priest leads a procession down the hill from the temple to the pool of Siloam to collect water, which is then taken back up the hill and poured out on the west side of the altar in the temple. And that ritual came to be understood as a reminder of the water poured out For the people of God during their 40 years wandering in the Sinai Desert. But it also came to symbolise the future outpouring of the Holy Spirit promised in the book of Joel, for example. So Jesus took their expectation and announced in a very prominent place that he himself would give to those who come to him both water to drink and water to flow. Jesus combined two vivid pictures of the traveller parched in need of quenching his thirst, representing the person separated from Christ. And of the thirsty land, representing the world, the secular world without God, dry empty and thirsty. And what is the water? By this he meant the Spirit, verse 39, who had not yet been given. So the living water to quench the thirsty traveller and to irrigate the parched world is the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And how do we experience this? Jesus says, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me. Two phrases, but just one condition. Come to me. There's no difference between coming to Jesus and believing in him, for coming to him to drink is, in fact, coming to him in faith. And thirsting and coming and drinking are all present tense. So we're not to come to Jesus once but are to keep coming and to keep drinking because we keep thirsting. What's physically true for the thirsty is true spiritually as well. And drinking water becomes flowing water, as the wartime Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple, said, no one can possess or rather be indwelt by the Spirit of God, and keep that Spirit to himself. Where the Spirit is, he flows forth. If there's no flowing forth, he is not there. But there is no way to ensure a constant inflow and a constant outflow except to keep coming to Jesus and to keep drinking. For the fullness of the Spirit is to be continuously appropriated by us faith. Now our second passage this morning is Ephesians 5 page 1176 and we're just going to look at um, three verses here 18 to 21 where the emphasis is upon the evidence of the Spirit's fullness and the command to be filled. The Government's very keen I think at the moment to get all our kids in primary school to um, master English grammar. I think somewhere just before I went to school They thought they wouldn't do that and wouldn't teach us grammar. We just can write what we like, really. And any grammar that any of us ever learnt as a consequence was because we learnt some other foreign language. But it's useful to understand a bit of grammar, to know exactly what the command, which it is, to be filled is. It's an imperative mood. It is obligatory. It is a command. It's an order. So we better know what it means. And we better experience it as well. It's plural in form. It's written to the whole Christian community. Just as we are, none of us are to get drunk. All of us are to be spirit-filled. It is in the passive voice. It's be-filled. We let God fill us. We yield and we receive not without uh, our cooperation, because we have to apply it, as we see, in this whole context. And it is, interestingly, a present tense. Now, in Greek, as you've probably heard me say before, if they have an aorist tense, which they did in using all those words that I said earlier in reference to the day of Pentecost, aorist tense means one specific, one-off action you could represent it by a dot. But here we have a present continuous tense, which you would represent with a line. It carries on all the time. That's the difference between being filled at Pentecost and to continue being filled throughout our Christian lives. You see, just remember if uh, when Jesus... Uh, at the, uh, the miracle uh, Cana in Galilee where he told them to kind of fill up all the jars with water and then he, um, you know, um, turned them into wine. That is an heiress tense. He did it once and for all. He was not setting himself up as a kind of free off-license that he would continue doing that forever. It's a one-off. So that's what the command be filled means. John Stott, in his... Uh, helpful book Baptism and Fullness the work of the Holy Spirit today writes there can be no doubt that the chief evidence is moral not miraculous and lies in the spirit's fruit not the spirit's gifts. Donald MacLeod of the Free Church of Scotland his book um, The Spirit of Promise is excellent and he writes being filled with the spirit is related not to the realm of euphoric experience but to the ethical rigors of the Christian life now let's have a look at the context in ephesians 4 and 5 to see how they come to make such comments because ephesians 4:1 we have paul urging us to walk worthy of the vocation with which we were called in other words you know we claim to be Christians, we must look like Christ and we must continue to. We're walking along, we're not just, uh, it's not static. 4.17, he exhorts us not to walk as other Gentiles, the pagans do. In one, he directs us to be imitators of God as dear children. And the principle laid down in 5.18 belongs to the same order of thought. So we have in 5.18 to 21, We have two verbs, both of which are in the imperative. They're commands, in other words. Do not get drunk, but be filled with the Spirit. And then he tells us what evidence there is of that. So, be filled is in vivid contrast to do not get drunk. No, it's a contrast, it's not a comparison. We're not to deduce that drunkenness and fullness are comparable. Where the fullness of the Spirit is, some kind, where, you know, where people think that the fullness of the Spirit is some kind of spiritual inebriation, which the Apostle Paul then sets over against each other. So we have two intoxicated states. One is physical, through wine, and the other is spiritual, through the Spirit's fullness. But that isn't what the Apostle Paul, in writing this, has in mind at all. Although it's true, you could say that the drunken man is under the influence of alcohol, and similarly you could say the spirit-filled believer may be described as under the control of the Holy Spirit. And it is true that on the day of Pentecost... When the believers spoke in the known languages, well, there are 15 different countries mentioned, so maybe there are 15 different languages from those who've come to Jerusalem that day, that some people thought that they were drunk. But, note, it's only a minority who thought they were drunk, and they did that because they were Jerusalem Jews and they didn't understand the languages that were being spoken. Because to them they were foreign languages, they could not understand them at all. But the majority were astonished at what they heard. Because what they heard was intelligent, coherent speak in their own languages from people who hadn't learnt it. So it would be a great mistake to suppose that those spiritful believers on the day of Pentecost were in a kind of drunken stupor, that such a state is intended to be a pattern for all future experiences of the Spirit's fullness. In fact, the opposite is the case. You see, being drunk results in a loss of control. Fullness of the Spirit, though, involves no loss of control. One fruit of the Spirit, listed in Galatians 5, is in fact self-control. Under Christ, we are able to get a grip of ourselves. Outside of Christ, we risk losing it. There are clearly two strong influences at work in here. There is alcohol in the bloodstream, and there's the Holy Spirit in the heart. Excessive alcohol results in unrestrained behaviour, loss of self-control, exaggerated self-confidence. Being filled with the Holy Spirit does not. Rather, it exhibits restrained and rational behavior. As one commentator on Acts 2 describes Peter as totally self-possessed, proclaiming the wonderful works of God and able to react with an evangelistic sermon, the model of insight courage, wisdom, and clarity. There were some in the New Testament who did equate the Holy Spirit with ecstasy, a loss of self-control and self-awareness, but the Apostle Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, says, for example, that uh, no, those who say that are subject to the others. So we need to be careful with language. It is misleading to talk as if to be filled with the Holy Spirit was like being intoxicated and losing control, when clearly it isn't. In fact, in Romans 12, we are expected to present our bodies as a reasonable service, to behave with decency and order, and to perhaps practice a love which is concerned about the needs of others. And then we read how being filled with the Spirit has four wholesome results, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So the first sign of fullness is fellowship with other believers expressed in our common worship, using presumably Old Testament psalms, and possibly new material. They think that, for example, Philippians 2, 5 to 11 is an early Christian hymn, either written or borrowed by Paul. Maybe Revelation 4:11 is also a snippet from a new Christian song written. The second sign, singing and making music in your hearts to the Lord, this is about wholehearted expression. And for that, we need good words and good tunes to enable us to express wholeheartedly our praise to God. Then we read, giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice it's not sometimes for some things, like the good things that happen to us, or simply the times when yeah, we're panicked and we're in a time of uh, a kind of, uh, we, we need God to get us out of a fix. No, at all times, for all things, for the things that you can't change, for example, situations we just have to accept, trusting in the overarching control and care of our Heavenly Father. So if you notice, the second and the third signs are towards God in singing and giving thanks, whilst the first, and what we'll see is the fourth sign, concerns our relationships with others, speaking to one another and then submitting to one another. Although the Apostle goes on to show that submission is a particular duty of a wife to her husband, children to their parents, and servants to masters. He begins by making submission the general duty of all Christians to each other, which of course includes husbands, parents, and masters. Humble submission is such an important part of Christian behaviour that the verb occurs 32 times in the New Testament. Not self-assertion, but self-submission is the hallmark of the Spirit-filled Christian. Only where such a submission (coughs) would prevent our reverence or loyalty to Christ from coming first, should we not do so. So the results of being filled with the Spirit are seen mainly in worship and fellowship. The fullness of the Spirit results in praising God and thanking the Father, and speaking and submitting to each other. In other words, producing right relationships with God and other human beings. Thinking not so much about our rights, but about our responsibilities and obligations. So if we've understood the fullness of the Holy Spirit correctly, that helps us understand two common features of the Christian life. They're these. It explains the fact that many Christians, long after their conversion have unforgettable spiritual experiences. For every Christian, there's the initial filling of the Holy Spirit at the time of his or her conversion. But that leaves plenty of room for other occasions in life when they're particularly touched of God. When, for example, perhaps their hearts are flooded with assurance, they know that although they're facing the valley of the shadow of death, they will fear no evil. They know where they're going. They know that they are safe and secure in the arms of Christ. Because ultimately they do so because they trust Christ's words of promise in the New Testament. But as they think and reflect on that, God through his spirit registers it in our hearts and minds. Or it may be an overwhelming sense of the beauty of God's creation. I mean, I and you can see that clearly. You know, different parts of the world we may have been to, or even just different parts of our country, or even looking kind of closely at plants or snowflakes. Well, I once, although it's beyond my experience and understanding, I once listened to a friend who is a very competent mathematician who was moved to tears. Well, not tears, his eyes watered. When he was explaining the math, well, it was a waste of time explaining the mathematics of the whole universe to me, but he clearly understood it, and it was most moving. Or maybe it is um, the spiritual strength to, to cope or rise to challenges in one's own circumstances, or those of one's loved ones, to know that God is with us through the tough times, through the debt. We read of the, the Holy Spirit uh, being uh, of a person being filled with the Holy Spirit in the New Testament in times of a crisis that they face. So, for example, when Peter in Acts four, you know, he'd been filled with the Spirit in Acts two, but he was it was said that Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, he was able to cope with the situation of being hauled up in front of the Sanhedrin. He was an ordinary fisherman, and he's up before parliament, if you like. And he was given the resources by God to kind of cope with that situation. Or responsibilities that people are faced with. Or in the case of Stephen, he was somebody who was described as a man full of the Holy Spirit, as if it was a sort of continuous description of somebody who had such worthy Christian characteristics. So while it may help and explain why... Christians do have unforgettable spiritual experiences, punctuated throughout their Christian life. From what we've learned here, it also sadly explains something else, and that is the low level of spiritual attainment in many Christians' lives. Some Christians simply don't grow. They remain spiritual babes, immature, ignorant and worldly. Others make initial progress and then stagnate. Their early progress is never realized. Well, God's directive is this go on being filled with the Holy Spirit. And this means, as I close, at least three things. The first is to avoid grieving the Holy Spirit. MacLeod has a very astute observation. It's worth listening to very carefully. Whatever we pretend to the contrary, there is usually little mystery about the ebb and flow of our spiritual lives. The lack of dynamism and the lack of love are easily explained. We can go back and find that, s- that somewhere we have violated God's commandments. We have gone off God's road and grieved his spirit. We should not grieve the Holy Spirit. We should follow God's commandments. That will ensure we stay close to him because our character will match his character. And secondly, being filled with the spirit means abiding in Christ. As we've seen in John 7, we must continually come to Christ to drink and thirdly it means keep in step with the spirit galatians 5:25 the word used in the original is the word used for formation dancing i know as much about formation dancing as i do about advanced mathematics but i can at least observe that you need to stay in formation for that kind of dancing to work otherwise it's chaos Similarly, being a Christian means that we stay in formation. We keep in step with the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Well, we all need to hear and obey Jesus' gracious invitation. If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. We must learn to keep coming to Jesus and to keep drinking. Only so, in the wise and balanced language of the old Book of Common Prayer, shall we quote, daily increase in the Holy Spirit more and more until we come unto God's everlasting kingdom. Amen.